if your desire is to be caught and punished, you may as well only commit this crime right in the police station. From the History Watch Project, this is the History Watch Podcast Series, bringing you up close and personal with history in the real world, with some help from people who know what they're talking about. I am Audra Dipti, and on today's episode of the History Watch Podcast Series, we welcome Professor David Trotman of York University. Join us as we discuss crime in the Caribbean, a legacy of colonialism, a product of globalization. I'm concerned with trying to understand how an institution created during the colonial period for specific purposes is transformed or not transformed in the period of independence. That was Professor Trotman discussing the ways in which colonial institutions that addressed crime, policing and imprisonment still serve as a foundation upon which present-day Caribbean societies battle the issue of crime. None of the Caribbean territories, none of the independent territories, ever went about a holistic and exhaustive review of the criminal code in order to excise those that stemmed out of the peculiarity of colonialism. Very few of them. Off and on, you'd see them trying uh, or making an attempt to, but um, it is never exhaustive. It's piecemeal here and there. I asked Professor Trotman to elaborate on what he means when he refers to the laws that stem out of the peculiarities of colonialism. The ruling class who has the authority to decide what is crime and what is not crime. Uh, Particularly, uh, they're more concerned with how do these uh, activities impact on their ability to control labour. If you look at the prison population, if you look at the criminal statistics for those tried, uh, or prosecuted, convicted, and uncommitted, a large portion of that is uh, really for those activities that should not be in the criminal records at all, but in fact should be under the heading of industrial relations. In other words, the legal system the present-day Caribbean uses as its foundation is grounded in colonial laws that gave priority to controlling the labor of newly emancipated slaves, as well as those individuals who came, primarily from India and China, to work under contract as indentured laborers. So basically, you're talking about criminalization of labor codes. Of labor codes, yes. So using the law to control labor. Precisely. For a particular class. I asked Professor Trotman to give a specific example of a colonial law that was used to control the laboring classes. He responds by pointing out the way in which congregating, or liming as it is known in Trinidad, was made a criminal act. For example, we're dealing with a tropical society. We're dealing with poor housing, and people spend a lot of time on the streets. They congregate on the street because in the 19th century they're living in, in houses that are not properly ventilated in the urban centres. Or if they're in the rural areas, living in, in places that are, that are really shacks. So people spend a lot of time outside. And yet you find a series of laws talking about congregation, uh, where people who are found in any numbers in, in, on the road, etc., etc., are committed a criminal, a, a criminal act. In fact, this is the, the genesis of the, the laws against liming, which is a peculiar trend our pastime that we find in the 20th century, carried on in the 20th century, because they are not removed from the books at all. Professor Trotman then goes on to discuss the criminalization of obia, a Caribbean religious tradition of African origin. For example, the curious, uh, the curious position of obia, where in some territories it's still on the books. Obia is a criminal act. Uh, it is only Guyana, British Guyana, or, or Guyana under Burnham, 
who move and for his own particular reasons who moved to decriminalize opium. If you have any perspectives on on the degree to which historical trajectories may have created situations that allowed for the proliferation of crime more or less in certain areas. I, I often argue that there's no real distinction between the patterns of crime in Barbados and the patterns of crime in Trinidad. There may be more in Trinidad. In, in Trinidad, but by and large, every single, every single Anglo-Caribbean society is under the gun for water better phrase with respect to occurrence of crime in the territory. The sources that um, give rise to criminal activity, certain kinds of criminal activity, are, are widespread and common. Okay, so you're saying that in Barbados, mm. it's known for having less crime, Trinidad, more crime, if you were just yeah. to put these two on a spectrum, yeah. and that the sources remain the same, so the same sort of context, they operate in the same context. Mm-hmm. So what are the variables that you see? Of common patterns. For example, the entire Caribbean face the onslaught of drug lords who are using Caribbean territories as stepping stones for the transfer of drugs to North America and, and Europe. But when you say drug lords, you're talking homegrown drug lords? No, um, the, the, the major narcotic purveyors in Latin America in particular, in Venezuela, Colombia, Mexico, etc. major facilities of increasing criminal activity is really the question of, of drugs mm-hmm. and how drugs is impacting on. And alongside that, both the political elites as well as the, to use a lawyer's best phrase, the validating elites, the middle class. That is, they're facilitating the import of, of, of cocaine and the, ex, and the transshipment of cocaine that they're involved in that. I'm not talking about any guy on the street that they would going to find and, and give them a six months, etc. But the, this thing is, is capital intensive and it can be only done with those who have A, the, the, the capital to be involved in it and B, the political clout to have themselves protected. Why somebody would choose to do a criminal act is a question of capture, prosecution and punishment. Youth growing up in a society know how many people who are involved in all kinds of criminal activities and they do not seem to be captured, prosecuted and punished, it encourages this belief that I can get away with it. All police forces, it's, well, that's one of the major challenges facing them. How do you, and all levels of crime here, how do you capture a crime doer, one, and B, how do you successfully prosecute that person and successful prosecution rate is extremely low. If you want, if, if, if your desire is to be caught and punished, you may as well only commit this crime right in the police station. What about the length of time it takes for things to come before the courts? Yes, yes that, that too is, is part of the, uh, the way in which the young person looks at crime. Most of them know that when they get to the court, it's taken four or five years. And during that period, they can do all kinds of things. Because the prisons are so packed now, most of them get bail. So they can go ahead and look for their lawyer's money by committing other crimes, which they do. So we are saying we have the Caribbean as a playground for drug lords, so to speak. Mm. Uh, we're saying that we have an ineffective system for capture. For, for detection, prosecution, and punishment. Our forensic sciences in the, in the Caribbean is primitive. And no, no I'm calling off for Trinidad and Jamaica. Uh, in particular, very little is spent on developing forensic services. 
But too often, as the society begins to fail in a number of institutions, that the youngsters begin to realize that they can get away with anything. But it seems to me that you're emphasizing a lot, not wrongly, crimes after they're committed. And I'm wondering if, in these societies, if we talk about institutions, if there are weak institutions that arguably could be preventative mm -hmm. in, in, in keeping young people off that road of, of crime. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, is there, are there strong institutions, social services, etc., that could help at-risk youth, for one, and then two, I ask you this because a historian here, in what ways do, are the presence or absence of these institutions linked to colonial legacy? During the colonial period, particularly after the, 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 the Moyne Commission report in the 30s, early 40s, etc., there's a lot of uh, emphasis being paid to developing these social services. Even though for punishment and reform and rehabilitation, Re reformative in the sense that they are dealing with their own interests. So that yes, it is how to take these youth and teach them a trade. So it's both moral and occupational reform that's taking place. That does not happen now. It, I mean, yes, it's on paper, but from all of the reports coming out from these institutions, it does not really happen. And they've become just like the larger prison, I guess, a, a revolving door for youth. And they just graduate from those to go up to, to secondary education and tertiary education in, in, in the wider prisons. So those have collapsed. Our police services, and I mean, the ability to, 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 to detect crime has collapsed. And there are whole other kinds of issues around, uh, around policing, that in how we recruit policemen, how we train them, what they're supposed to do, and things like that, that we have to take a serious look at again. In the colonial period, the police are, are there for the purposes of colonialism. They're trained in that kind of way. What does the police force in an era of independence really mean? It's not really come to grips with that. Certain economies have developed that might lead to particular patterns of crime. Mm -hmm. But so, look at um, what happens because of tourism. Because this high crime rate that you talk about in Jamaica is not all over Jamaica. It is in selected areas, particularly in the urban in the urban parishes, and a lot of that has been started by and fueled by the politics of, of the country that allowed for the development of these dons, who originally started off as being garrison leaders of, uh, that is, selected community leaders, to deliver the vote to the, 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 the party of the choice. But over time, of course, they began moving out of politics into drugs, that the politician had to protect them in bringing in drugs, guns, etc. When, in fact, these guns emerged as real superpowers and didn't really need the, the politician, then they started throwing their hands in the air and, and talking about crime and the garrison. The case over Dudu's, for example, is a perfect example of that. Dudu's coke of a couple, two, three, four years ago is a perfect example of that, of a don who got too big for his breaches. get back to the distinction between the tourist-based industry and the oil-based industry. So in the tourist-based industry, policing is really how to protect this project of tourism. And it means heavy patrolling of tourist areas, ensuring that tourists are protected, that the city is clean, and a whole host of things like that. And on the other hand, in the case of the oil-based industry in Trinidad, 
who are not dependent on, on, on tourism and therefore doesn't have to put up a nice pretty face. All they really need is how to export this oil and gas and therefore how to control labor while they're doing that. There's still poverty. I'm not saying that it has eradicated poverty. To attempt to give people the belief that they're operating in this rich country, but it's also exacerbated conflict between groups, those who really have access, who are really benefiting from this oil economy, and those who are not, who are just waiting on their handouts. Hand but in the meanwhile, a certain sector in that economy has expanded, and not only expanded, living ostentatiously. And when you have that kind of thing in a small design, 1864 square mile, the fellow on the street is not going to be satisfied. He's not going to be satisfied with the crumbs coming from the table. Because he, he knows he's a small society, sociologically small also, and he hears, he knows people talk about those who are benefiting from this oil boom in ways in which he can never benefit from. You know, you see this pattern develop pretty much in, in a lot of mineral rich countries that the money itself mm. does not trickle down. Not all of them, you have to be very careful. Because it's not like that in Norway. Some of this Saudi Arabia states it's not like that. But what they, what they like to call the Dutch disease, the people who suffer from the Dutch disease, the people like Trinidad, Venezuela, Nigeria, etc. But we're talking, those are all classically places in the global south. What is the distinction then? The distinction is really, to go back to the first question you posed, what colonial legacy in terms of the structure of government, the structure of the economy, etc., that they inherited, and how far have they moved in coming out of that structure and creating a new one to suit independent modern times. And it's not easy, you know, it's easy to talk about, but it's not easy to do. Norway never experienced colonialism. The short period under, under Germany was a German occupation, but it was not colonialism, in the sense in which you understand colonialism in, in places like Trinidad. Okay, so are we saying the colonial system of the region were developed for a particular purpose, that being to organize labor, for a plantocratic elite, etc., etc. And the Caribbean has never transitioned away from that. They have not yeah. undertaken a proper analysis about what works, what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's just, as in many places in the global south that have been colonized, it, it's trying to make something on top of something that was never really organized to create a society in the first place. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. But I also want to deal with multicultural context. Like, in what ways does that play out? Is there anything we need to consider when we're thinking about crime and criminal activity? And crime is an equal opportunity employer, and the only distinction that you would get in this is where some racial divisions in the society are used to justify for ill-gotten wealth. You are saying systematically, race is an equal opportunity employer. Crime is. Sorry. <laughs> race is not Sorry. crime. Is. You are saying that uh, from a systematic point of view, crime is an equal opportunity employer. Mm. And people of all backgrounds, walks of life, proportionally mm. will go mm. into crime, but it depends on what are the deterrence. In other words, at one point, you would find that the bulk, the colonial, the bulk of the white collar criminals are white in the colonial period. When it changes and a, a new group comes into power, that you see, for example, when in the, in the case of the Trinidad, the People's National Movement comes into power, some you start to get an influx of black white collar criminals. Everyday conversations, people's understanding 
of crime, mm -hmm. it tends to be highly racialized. So we, yeah. we tend to talk about black youth mm -hmm. in the Trinidadian context. Mm -hmm. it's, you tend to see attempts at making connections between the, the situation of black youth in, in Trinidad, possibly also in the Caribbean, and with the United States. And mm -hmm. are you saying that those comparisons are ill-conceived? But I, I think they're not perfect fits at all. That if, if again going back to Trinidad, in crime in the, in the rural area, you have a lot of East Indians involved in crime. It is what people are, uh, are, are looking at as being criminal, what kind of criminal activity we are talking about. And people will do the criminal activity that is easily accessible to them in their, in, communities. In their communities. The racialized discourse around crime in your mind is misplaced. It's misplaced. Uh, but at the same time, of course, these things work on, on, on people's mind. That they will look at, say, in Trinidad, two white collar criminals, the number of white collar criminals who are all East Indian. And this, um, this is, you'll completely forget that if you looked at white collar crime 20 years ago, the names that you're calling are not East Indian because East Indians are not in political power. That brings us to the end of this episode of the History Watch podcast on crime in the Caribbean, in which we heard from Dr. David Trotman of York University in Canada. Dr. Trotman specializes in Caribbean history. To learn more about his research and publications on crime and policing in the Caribbean, visit his website, www.davidvtrotman.com. The History Watch podcast series is coordinated by Dr. Audra Dipti. To learn more about the History Watch project, visit us at historywatchproject.com. You can also find links to our other projects on our website. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye.